wonderful to sing with you this morning. Amen. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, for the reading of God's Word momentarily. This sermon will come from Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, through chapter 14, verse 5. The title of today's message is The Marks of a Healthy Christian. The Marks of a Healthy Christian. As we head into vacation season, it's good to take an inventory of where we've been. With COVID restrictions lifted, we've enjoyed ministry these last two months. We, after tonight, we'll have had two members meetings. Just this last two weeks, we've had ministries involved with our children, as you've seen so much of with Vacation Bible School. We had a preparation day, a work day last Saturday, where many of you came out and trimmed hedges and cleaned things and built setups and uh, decorated rooms and prepared lessons and more than I can even imagine to say. And then just yesterday, uh, as if we hadn't had enough going on with ministry, uh, we had a pork loin sale. And many of you bought pork loins and enjoyed a meal last night, and it helped support the, the youth going to camp. Um, and so I just want to take a deep breath with you and say, <laughs> I mean, really? And uh, just exciting. I mean, it's good stuff. I'm not, not upset about that, not braggadocio about that, just excited. It's good stuff. It's good to be able to be active. If, if I mean, last year taught us anything. It taught us to appreciate, appreciate Sabbath, appreciate family. It also taught us to appreciate when we get to go. We get to cook and eat and talk and be. And so I'm really glad that you're able to be here today, really, that you're able to be here not just that you're, not just that you are here, but that you're able to be here. We've gone through so many, so many seasons, or such a season, so many weeks where we we weren't sure, and so we're grateful. And many of our elders and deacons take vacation. Many of you do too. During the next six weeks after right now, um, that doesn't mean we don't come to worship God and come to church. It just means our ministries, our ministries proper, tend to be more relaxed, more relational, more unscheduled. There's not a lot going on with some kind of a program or an event to be at. And so tonight we'll get to talk more about the ministries of the church that we'll have going forward in the fall at our members meeting. We'll talk about it tonight at 5. If you haven't officially joined a membership here, I'd like to recommend it to you. I'd hope you would consider it as one of the results of today's sermon. Our sweet community is open to you who have a gospel understanding and a profession of faith, who have evidence of saving faith. It's open to you. And our covenant membership is a local attempt to illustrate the universal marking off of God's people as opposite and different than the earth dwellers, as Revelation calls it, or of, as Satan's people. So that's our membership is, a, is a, an attempt locally to illustrate the universal marking off of God's redeemed people. Uh, the real from the counterfeit trinity those that have a form of godliness but deny the power therein, like Timothy says. Like Revelation is going to describe and is describing, we are not ones that want to be marked by the trinity that is counterfeit, but the trinity that is authentic. Our membership is not a power play. It's not an exact science. But it is an attempt to model what we see from Scripture, what we think Jesus showed us as important in his doctrine of the local church. And to share power, to flatten it out to the members, to guard and proclaim the gospel together, to receive and to release 
members together, to elect elders and deacons together and ordain them, to spearhead ministries, to cry out heartfelt prayers together to our God who hears us and who is involved in our lives, to conjoin together to proclaim the gospel in our geography. We count people not because God, not because we just want to count people, but because God counts people. We mark a role because God marks off a people. This is not only a mark, there is not only a mark of a beast, as we've heard it called, but a mark of the believer. And so this will help us in these ways today to understand what it means to be marked off by the Lord and to then have marks of a healthy Christian ensue and also what it means not to. We're going to look at both sides of that equation. If you follow the reading of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, books such as Ezekiel or Zephaniah or Daniel and so on, you'll understand better how to interpret Revelation, the, the final book in the ordering of the canon of Scripture. You'll see a beautiful picture rather than a complex puzzle. You'll see cycles in apocalyptic literature for emphasis rather than a strict chronology that creates confusion and sometimes exhaustion. The Lord knows that we learn through repetition, through cycles, through seeing the same important things again and again in fuller flower. That's good parenting. A parent doesn't bark out an order from on high and then the kid automatically gets it. A parent models again and again, this is the manner in which we should live our lives. This is how we do it. Son, this is how we do it. Daughter, this is how we do it. Again and again. Breadwinners and keepers of the homes. What we are is people modeling for our little ones what it looks like again and again to be faithful to the Lord. Perfectly? No. Aspirationally, as I say often, yes. And the Lord knows that we learn through repetition. God is not a tyrant toward us. As Charles Spurgeon said, He pursues us like the hound of heaven and He gets us. We learn through cycles, seeing things that are true again and again in fuller flower until the bloom is fully seen by all. God does not forget redeemed man's learning style when he gets to the final book in the Bible. Far from it. In Revelation, he remembers how we learn. And so we get to move today, if we follow with this text, we get to move from frustrated with what we don't understand about things like the mark of the beast to more fulfilled with what we do understand about the flow of the history of redemption. So, without any more background, today we're going to talk about the marks of the unredeemed in chapter 13, and then the marks of the redeemed in chapter 14. And we will see together the marks of the unredeemed and the marks of the redeemed as contrasted, and contrasts really do help us get to where we're going. They help us to grow. Contrasts help us to clarify conviction. Contrasts help us to go deeper and get stronger. Contrast helps us to see reality as it really is instead of being hazy about what is actually going on around us and where history is heading. So my prayer for us today is that each of you would not only be redeemed, but also have confidence in your redemption by the work of Christ in you. So let's read together. I'll read to you. You listen from Revelation 13, 11 and following. Uh, my ESV Bible says it's titled The Second Beast. The Second Beast, because last week we talked about the first beast, which is commensurate with a counterfeit son. And this is a counterfeit spirit, if you're looking at the three persons of the Godhead. 
So verse 11 now. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Then I looked, and behold... On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace unto us, the hearers. So, as I said, we're going to look at two points from this text. In chapter 13, the verses I read, the marks of the unredeemed. And in chapter 14, the marks of the redeemed. So let's take the first part, the marks of the unredeemed. Look again at verses 11 and 12. It says, and right before it, it says, here's a call for the endurance of the faith of the saints. That's a very important to the entire book of Revelation. But then it says in verses 11 and 12, I saw another beast. So a second beast or a third person in the counterfeit trinity that is headed by the counterfeit father that is the dragon. It says, it saw another beast rising out of the earth. This time the other one came out of the sea, the scary sea. This one comes out of the earth. So think of land and sea. A counterfeit power. The enemy has power. That was last week's sermon. And has, has a power and seeks to persuade us. And so that's, that's, um, that was last week's sermon. So verses 11 and 12 here, marks of the unredeemed. It says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb. So you see a counterfeit Savior. Lamb is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. 29 times, 28 of the times, it's speaking of the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. This time, this word lamb is used to indicate a false savior, a false lamb, a counterfeit lamb, and it spoke like the dragon. So notice the language patterns of this lamb. This language, the language patterns of this lamb is not like God the Father. It's like Satan, the dragon. And you have to go back and read Revelation 12 and maybe listen to our teaching on Revelation 12 to understand the comings and goings of the dragon and his war that he's waging against God's people. 
So 28 out of 29 times lamb is used. It's used in reference to the real lamb. This time it's the counterfeit lamb. Our lamb is the sacrificial savior of us as the redeemed people of God. And so we long and look and behold our, our savior. We're marked by God as redeemed, as bought people. But here we get a warning about a false savior, a counterfeit savior that tricks the world, an imitator, the blasphemous beast. That's where we are. And it says in verse 12 that he had a mortal wound that was healed. See, let's look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in the presence of the first beast and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of singing, of praising, of worship to some extent. And it says that first beast, or the second person in the counterfeit trinity, that his mortal wound was healed. And so there's a, there's a fake resurrection. The fake sun beast is imitating a fake resurrection whose mortal wound was healed. We saw this back in verse 3 of chapter 13 as well, and we see it here in verse 12. So this the main concern we have, what the types call an existential threat or a threat of existence. We never outgrow our need to explain the universe, to find significance, and if possible, live forever. Right? This is the way people look to freeze themselves. We don't want our existence to end. So Satan seeks to capitalize on that every man kind of desire. We want to exist forevermore. So Satan seeks to speak to that felt need in a way that offers an antithesis to the one true God. Satan did this way back as well. This is not a new tactic of Satan. Consider what he said to Jesus. Worship me and live. Follow me and I'll make you have all this. Or consider what he said to Job, the context of curse God and die. Or consider what he said to our first parents. You can be like God if you'll do it my way. God's trying to keep you from your better life. Satan's shortcuts don't cut deep enough, though, to get to our human condition, to get to our deepest needs. I'm convinced from Scripture that we do not need a pep talk. We need a Savior. I'm convinced from Scripture we don't need a better day today. We need eternal justice. I'm convinced that we don't need coddled up to We need codified, sealed by the Spirit, as the brother read from Ephesians. We don't need simple economy. We need everlasting economy, life. Verses 11 and 12 teach us about a lamb. It's just not the true lamb. It's a fake lamb. And it says in verses 13 through 15, it says that this lamb performed great signs, as in fact did the counterfeit spirit, the prophet. Signs aren't everything. They tend to accompany, in the good way, the giving of Scripture and epochal shifts in salvation history, sometimes on the mission front. But beware that your religion is not based on a demand for signs. The Bible warns against that. We should not be ever seeking sign gifts, although God gives them and has given them. God gives gifts, but God allows the, the dragon fake sign gifter to promote a false gospel through signs. Here he makes fire come down. Let's actually read it afresh. Look at verses 13 and following. It says the, dragon, or the, the uh, false beast performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. People could witness it, see? 
And it says, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, of the second of the first beast, the second person in the counterfeit trinity, it deceives those earth dwellers, those who dwell on earth, which is a, a blanket statement for the unredeemed, for unbelievers in Revelation. And it says, telling them to make an image for the beast, well, that should raise our hackles, shouldn't it? We aren't to worship any graven image, right? We're not, we're not iconoclasts. There was an entire controversy in church history fought over that. We in the church, the Western church, rightly understand that we're not to create a graven image, and we don't worship symbols. We worship the person of Christ who is risen indeed. We don't need an icon. We have a Savior that's going to come back riding on a white horse, and He's going to conquer all of His enemies, and we're going to be with Him forever. But this is an imagery thing. It's, a, it's, an, it's an idolatrous thing. It's a false worship thing. And He was telling them in verse 14, they made, to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So again, this counterfeit resurrection story. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Think of the breath of life. Think of resurrection. And the subjunctive, so that the image of the beast might even speak. And the beast would be speaking not words of the father, but words of the dragon. It would be speaking, speaking Satan's words. And might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed to be slain. So this is, a, this is a real power. So here we see making fire come down. That reminds us of the stories from kings that counterfeits Elijah's calling down fire on the prophets of Baal, or the fire by night that led God's people in the wilderness. This misappropriation of the powers of fire. These earth dwellers, these unbelievers are deceived, but not those redeemed people that are marked off by God. The redeemed people are not deceived. They know their Bibles. They know epochal history of redemption. They know salvation. They know what this, how this is supposed to go. Beware that your religion, as I said, is not based on signs, because there are times when the signs seem to only support the evil one. Sometimes the only sign that God sends is the sign sent to Nineveh. Repent, repent, repent. There is a myth of neutrality about spiritual things that is shattered, lock, stock, and barrel in this text. On the day of the Lord, many will have been around the crying of prayers out to God. They will have been among us, but not of us. That's the implicit teaching of scriptures like this. They say we must be among the world, but not of the world. That's the challenge to missions, right, in our culture. And to some extent... That is correct. The genitive indicates possession, the word of. And these kinds of texts add value to our understanding. Who are we of? Not just who we're among, but who are we of? Who are we actually of? Hebrews 6 warns us carefully, lovingly, that it's possible to spend a lot of time among the redeemed, but not to be of the redeemed. There are relational reasons and sometimes even economic reasons and societal reasons unbelievers might choose to be among us. Usually hard times pulls back the veil on that, though, and, and prunes. But not in every case. In times of persecution during Roman rule, you still had false disciples amongst the sheep. We read about that in Acts 20 and as well as in most of the epistles. But often, persecution will pull back that veil. It's one of the reasons that 
I think God allows persecution of the church is to help create this contrast so that we might cling to what is good and not put our hope in the economies of trade here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As believers in this church, and tenderly hear the gospel message for you, for your encouragement and for your assurance that you are not only among the believers, but you're of the believers. And I want to say this morning to the person that's present here that has ulterior reasons to be among God's people, I want to tell you that there is still time for you to receive the gospel and become of God's people. This is not an exact science. If a person wanders recklessly from the flock, it's easy enough to see. But those that kind of have a wink-wink and a nod-nod relationship with the gospel, that's not easy to see. I want to tell you this morning that God will not be mocked, but that our, our Savior, as much as He is a lion for judgment and for conquest, He is a lamb that laid down His life to be your Redeemer. Your pride does not have to dictate your comings and goings with the life of the church anymore. It can be authenticated today. Today doesn't have to be like that anymore. Join the redeemed not only in number, but in spirit. For the joy of your soul, you wouldn't be the first person, you wouldn't be the first preacher that was converted thinking they had been saved. This is not a message for tender consciences. I am speaking to the hardest of the hard, but I believe with all of my heart that people that sit amongst among God's people, week by week, oftentimes are slow in coming to be of God's people. And I want you to receive the gospel. It's for you. You know the gospel? Let me tell you again. It's that we're eternally separated from God because of our sin. That we've earned that. That's our starting point. But that He has given us the free gift of eternal life. If we'll just receive it, He gives us the right to become children of God, not children of the beast. So all that is for us is from Him, if only we'll receive Him. Won't you? Won't you trust Him? Won't you put your faith in the true Son? Not the fake promises of the perennial beasts at work in this world. I'm sharing the gospel with you. I don't want you to be duped beyond return. This beast is persuasive, and these issues are issues of the heart. They're issues of worship. They're issues of song. You can tell a lot by the songs, can't you? The songs of a people. What do they sing? What do they memorize? Thus, what are they catechized with? This is certainly not a polemic against secular music, but do you understand that music does shape you? Do you understand that what you sing reflects something of what you cherish? Have you considered the recommendations of songs such as we recommended to you in membership class, or we've probably recommended since the songs from Sovereign Grace and the songs that, that we've shared with you, the providers of music that will nourish your soul and help you to memorize Scripture and deep theological points? Have you considered that when you do just listen to a feel-good song, you need to make sure that feel-good song isn't shaping you in abject evil? Think about these things. I know you have freedom in Christ. You also have responsibility. 
You have responsibility to think about that which shapes your thinking and your soul. So think about these things. And come to worship to sharpen your skills in the gospel. Come and lean in and learn as a disciple of Christ. I could say more about this, but let's move on. We're really talking about the marks of the unredeemed, but they go back and forth because by, with the contrast, you see what the marks of the redeemed should look like, and you see what the marks of the unredeemed look like. So they kind of do this, but we're still in the top half of the text. So look at verses 16 and following, because now we get into the, the thing that everybody likes to talk about and I think is overplayed, but we, we love to talk about it. Look at uh, verses 16 through 18. It says, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, for understanding. Let the one who has understanding, who has wisdom, then imperative verb, verb. we have math in this text. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but science and technology and math enters into this equation here. Calculate, imperative verb. Add it up. Add up the number of the beast. So here, you know, literature meets math. It's the number of a man, and its number is six, comma, space six, comma, space six. What are we talking about with this? What does this mean? Well, let me kind of speak of it by speaking back here and then coming full on into it. Notice the false spirit has a counterfeit gospel. I want to toggle over to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, and read to you ten verses about the true gospel. This is, this is, um, this is the, the Paul's early letter to the church at Galatia. I say early, it was probably one of the first books of the New Testament to be written down. And he says here, I am astonished that you, the believers at Galatia, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a heterodox gospel. And he says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some of you, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathematized. Let him, think about this for just a second. Really think about this verse. If an angel comes, if Paul himself had done it, which he didn't, right? He said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But if Paul had done it, right, don't, don't create an icon out of Paul either. He called himself the chief of sinners. As interesting of a man as he was, as inspired as his writings were. He wasn't a perfect man. There's only one of those. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The importance of getting the gospel right. Now, this is not a sermon from Galatians, but it dovetails nicely. So as we're toggling, think about that. We must get the gospel right. In our church, the members are vested with the giving and with the receiving and releasing of members because our members are entrusted, as we think biblically so, they're entrusted with the responsibility to have received the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. It's an every person responsibility. It's, it's not just for a couple that are set aside for oversight. We have this responsibility together. So there's a, if we're not going to fire our church members... As one author said, we're going to have to work together to really understand the gospel. We can't get it wrong. And he says here, anathematize the person 
that preaches a false gospel, which is clearly what the beast is doing in the depiction of Revelation 13. Now, verse 9, And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So in case you didn't get it the first time, I really meant what I said. Now, verse 10, For now I'm seeking the, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Spoiler alert, the number of man is six. Or the number of God. For am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. It didn't come from the number of man. Verse 12. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he was, he was religiously aware. He was around the synagogues. and says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by grace, and he goes on to tell, and was pleased to reveal his son to me. He goes on to talk about his calling specifically. But I just want to stop there and just say, he was called by grace. He was born from above. This came by revelation. This came from a right understanding of the teaching of Scripture about the personal work of Christ, about epochal history of redemption, about the Messiah. And so we must get the gospel right. And it is not the gospel of man. It's the gospel of God. In Galatians, in Galatians, if you look forward just a page, or it may be on the same page, look at Galatians chapter 3 and see verses 27 to 29. It's instructive for us. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So spanning from Genesis to Revelation in terms of our canonical understanding of the, the epics of salvation history, of what I'm calling epochal history for shorthand. Now turn back to our focus text today, Revelation 13, 16. I want you to notice why I chose this cross-reference today, why we're toggling. Revelation 13, 16 says, And it causes, and it causes all, both great and small, small and great, rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked. To be marked on the right hand of the forehead, which is a clear picking up from, from the Torah with how we were to tie these and bind these on our foreheads. They're supposed to be marked. In the Old Covenant, they were, they were to mark themselves at times for the authenticity of their Judaism. And so what this says here in Revelation 13, 16, is that small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, Satan's markings has a concerted outreach to both the powerful and the powerless to the large and the small, to the economic thrivers and those that are marginalized, to the free people and the slave people in the global marketplace. So I want to encourage you today to to not get de facto baptized into Satan. I want to urge you today to follow the true spirit, which is not automatic. We're not born immediately into the kingdom. We're born again. 
This is the narrative of the gospel. It's the message of Scripture is that we must be born again. And so follow the true spirit. And you know the sound of the Lord's voice. This resonates with you, believers. You are my primary audience. But I take pauses two, maybe three times every sermon to talk to the unbeliever and say, come join us. This is real. And the, you wouldn't be thinking it's real if the spirit wasn't working on you. You would be a heckler right to the end. And God will get his justice against the heckler, but ours is not to heckle the heckler. Ours is to ask them to come in. It's to beg them to come in. It's to pray that they would come in. It's to shed tears that they might come in. And so why would you do that? Well, I mean, a great example of that is Paul, isn't he? I mean, a great example of that's Paul. He's not just heckling the church. He's wholesale orchestrating the intellectual and the tactical crusade against the church. And darkness to light, he's born again. You know, we talk about sign gifts, and we should, because it's, it's a scriptural discussion. And we're talking about signs today, and we should. But, you know, I think the greatest sign, the greatest miracle of the truth of salvation is the regeneration of the person on the inside. I mean, I'd believe that more than a fire, fire falling from heaven right now. I mean, when you take somebody that was abjectly against the gospel as Paul and suddenly he's converted, how do you explain that? Have you seen it, you know? How about the family member that you prayed for for years, you thought they'd never come. They seem to have gone farther from Christ instead of closer to him. And then she accepted the gospel. It seemed to be out of nowhere. You just pounded them with scripture at the Thanksgiving table and, and now it's like they want it all of a sudden. Like you're having to kind of sharpen your own edges understanding the Scripture just to have the right things to say to them. Right? You don't have to want it worse for them than they want it for themselves anymore. They've got it. Right? right? And how about your own miracle story? I mean, what's your story? From time to time, it's good to just scan the room. I can tell you, this guy wasn't born a Christian. The Lord opened my eyes from the inside out. And He has yours too, if you see I mean, you may not be able to pinpoint the day he opened your eyes, but you know the lights are on, don't you? Some of you dramatically, some of you slowly, but all glory is to Christ, isn't it? We don't give it to a beast. We don't give it to a counterfeit, perennially or ultimately. The marks of the unredeemed are not to mark us. The false spirit has power at times in world history that corrupts governmental spheres the same as the family sphere can be corrupted or the business sphere of the church sphere can even be corrupted. We know of churches that have lost the gospel. We know that. And so they're not churches at all. These spheres can be corrupted and the government sphere sometimes can be so corrupted that that power can make even buying and selling contingent on following worldliness, on following the earth dwellers. On following the beast, as this text says. In these times, and maybe in a time to come, you, as a believer, cannot buy or sell unless you're marked as unredeemed. This calls for wisdom. It calls for understanding. So we need it. And apparently we need math, too, with this imperative verb, calculate. So what do we make of the number of man, of six? Gematria is thrown around a lot. It's the linguistic phenomenon where a language's numbers are derived from the numbering in the alphabet. So A would be 1, and B would be 2, and C would be 3, and D would be 4, and so on. So if you, you could create a numerical scheme by which, which letters you put together. If you want to find a, a real easy example of this, you can look in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, there's a selective genealogy of Jesus tracking through David 
And in that selective genealogy, you have three consonantal terms, which in English would sound like D and V and D, David, because there's no vowels in Hebrew. And so the Daleth and the Va and the Daleth would form the number 14, the fourth letter and the sixth letter and the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, you would have 14, indicating the messaging that's trying to get across the importance of 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. So if you go read the first verses in the Gospel of Matthew this afternoon with that track, you would see an example of gematria, a linguistic phenomenon where the, the usage of letters also indicates a numerical correlation. Um, interestingly here, that's what some think are going on. So that they come up with schemes with 666 and 6 to tie it to some kind of a Roman emperor. Some say Nero, Vespian, Domitian. And there are ways to kind of float that and to do that. And certainly the parallels are worthy, but I don't think it's an exact science. And I think rather what's, what the best walk away of, of 6, 6, 6 is, it's, it's consecutively and thricely the number of man. The number of man is never complete. What have we seen in Revelation over and over again? We've seen cycles of the number, not six, but right seven seals and seven angels and seven trumpets, and we're going to see seven bowls, and there's seven different presentations of history from the woman to the dragon, and now we're looking at the beasts, and we're going to look at the redeemed of the Lord at the end of this sermon, and we're going to look at the coming, second coming of the Son of Man, but it seems like there's these cycles and there's these cycles, and even maybe even seven cycles in the book of Revelation, where we learn through seeing these contrasts over and over again. It, differently, it's the same telling. It's a telling of the same history of, of people, of God's people and the unredeemed people, through over and over again, coming into fuller flower. I think that is a, a, a more natural way of reading Revelation. If that's the right way to read Revelation, if that's the most helpful way to read Revelation, then God's freeing us from having to put everything together because what he's simply saying is the beast is the number of man. He's not the number of God. God's number would be a perfect number, like seven, a complete number, like the seven days in a week instead of just six. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. If, if, if we're on to something, just by way of application, how frustrating is it to work on end and on end and never have completion? Isn't that the lot of man? I mean, it's always six days, isn't it? It's never, it's never entering into our eternal rest. It's never finding completion. We know something of that, don't we? I mean, the laundry's never done. The grass always grows again. I always have to get another haircut, right? You know something. I always have to clean the kitchen again. The groceries are never fully stocked. It, all, it always comes, right? But that's, that's part of the fallenness of man. It's the human condition. It's, it's human anthropology. It's the doctrine of man. But what we need is to move not only into an understanding of man, but of God. Because the doctrine of man is always incomplete. But what God has done in the true Trinity is redeemed mankind through a man that came, the God-man, Jesus. See, the infinite richness of theology, it just keeps coming to play. It really never stops. There's always a counter to the enemy. But the enemy comes. I think this number 666 the meaning is embedded at the end of chapter 13. It's the number of man. It's not the number relative to God. God is making us sanctified. He's going to grant us glorified bodies. He's doing a good work in us. He'll bring it to completion. So I think that is far and away enough about understanding the marks of the unredeemed. Let's look briefly at the marks of the redeemed.
see this contrast the other way. Look at Revelation 14, 1. There's another imperative verb here. It's behold. I always like to mind my imperatives when I'm reading the Bible. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with the Lamb, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You see that? Written on their foreheads? It's not the mark of the beast, is it? It's the mark of God, isn't it? Are you God's child? Where's your mark? Is it on your head? Or can you read something and see the symbol in it? You need a mark on your head to be God's? You remember what we read from Ephesians earlier? Ephesians chapter 1. Whom has sealed us for our inheritance? Well, you say the Spirit in Ephesians 1.14, language in 13, but it's what, who is the Spirit? The third person in the real Trinity, who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God. So who has sealed us for our inheritance? God. Is our keeping of ourselves dependent on our work, the work of man, or is it dependent on the work of God? Is the name that's written on your forehead need to be written here in neon in order for it to be in there? Or is it obvious by the marks of your life pattern whether or not you're marked as the redeemed child of God? It becomes obvious by your life pattern, doesn't it? You don't have to endlessly worry if you've got the right marking on your hand or your head. This covenant is not based on an external mark. This covenant is based on an internal reality. The Spirit has made you new. And you bring all praise to the Son. And that praise to the Son is pleasing to the Father. And God is worshipped. As we've said in chapter 7, think of 144,000 as 12 times 12 is representative of the redeemed old and new covenant in Christ's blood, looking forward and looking back, naming of the 12 patriarchs and naming of the 12 apostles. Hebrews tells us about Mount Zion in chapter 12 when theophanies or God appearances occur. Behold is what happens. You fall, you worship. His power and glory and honor, His holiness causes us to take a step back and to bow down and say, wow, that's not me. I mean, I'm either going to be crushed by that or I'm going to be converted by that, but I'm not going to control that. And that's kind of the message in Isaiah. I'm going to read you a cross-reference in Isaiah 45. It's a message about our Savior. And here's what it says in verses 15 to 25. Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Remember, idol makers, we've been talking about that today. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Hear me, Galatians 6.16, O Israel of God. Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. There's a truth for then and a truth for now. It's often the way the Bible's wound up. Verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. He wants us here, you see. Inhabitation. He wants us to inhabit the earth. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth, not the lies. I declare what is right, not the wrongs. 
Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present yourself. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me. Our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 45, 15 to 25 has bearing on Revelation 14, 1 to 5. All fall, down, all fall down in the presence of God. Oh, dear friend, God will not be mocked. He'll be worshiped on the day of the Lord. And we won't be shocked because we are redeemed, marked by the Lord. A mark written on our forehead, spiritually speaking. We will behold our God, and that will be a sight indeed. Consider how apparently stronger powers fall at the power of God on the appointed day, whatever that day is, and certainly on the ultimate day. Consider how they fall at the power of God. Do you remember how it happened during Israel's exodus from Egypt? Consider Psalm 105, 36 to 38, as they remembered. It says in Psalm 105, 36 to 38, He struck down all of the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then He brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among the tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon them. Notice God sent Moses, and God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the plague of the firstborn. And the first fruits of all their strength was struck down. It looked like impossible odds. 400 years of slavery. But the first son redeems all of us. We are the first fruits of God's righteousness, described by the perfect, a finished 144,000. This is not a delimiting number, but an increasing number with each generation. God is still, as God is still in the redeeming business through this gospel right now. And that's why I keep inviting the unbelievers to join us. In Revelation 14.2, let's go back there to end this sermon. We've looked at these cross-references and tried to understand the, this text in light of the entire Bible, the whole canon. It says in Revelation 14.2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now after verse 2, jump over to chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 2, it says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. That sea's been tamed, hasn't it? And those also those who had conquered the beast. The beast has been conquered, hasn't he? And its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sang a song. And it connects with Moses, the song of Moses, verse 13. The song... Of victory. Now look back at Revelation 14, verse 2. At the end it says, The harpists were playing their harps. You see the cycles? You see it coming again and again in fuller flower? It says they were singing in verse 3. It says they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Go back and look at Revelation 4 and 5 for that part. No one could learn that song except the believers, the 144,000, who have been redeemed from all the earth. 
those of us that have followed the teachings of the prophets and the apostles, those of us that have learned this word, those of us that know the author of it. Verse 4, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. And the banner is, for they are blameless. Let's see if we can put a ribbon on that, shall we? Look at Revelation 14 there in those verses in 3 through 5 and try to pull this together. This is the mark of the marks of a healthy Christian, certain marks of the redeemed. I'll just give you five of them as five applications right there at the very end of that text. For buying and selling is not ultimate to us, for one. For two, we sing not for show, but we sing with the stringed instruments like the harps because we're tuning our voices every Sunday and in family worship for eternity with the Lamb. The Lamb is not aware of what, unaware of what we do here. He's very aware of our singing. And He's pleased over one lost sheep that repents. We will triumph and we should sing like it. Songs accompany conquest in biblical parlance. Put a, put a song in your heart and sing not for yourself but for the Lord. For three, the redeemed from all the earth is all of us. We aren't all men that haven't had relations with women like this text says. What this text is saying is the redeemed of the Lord are seeking purity. It's not just men, there are women going to heaven too. It's a catch-all for the brothers and sisters that is saying that we will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We won't follow sexual impurity. We won't seek undefiledness. We'll seek to be chaste. But when we fall short, we will repent and return to the Lord. We will flee from the idolatry of this age and the images of this age that serve not the Lord but the beast. We'll flee the, the little screens and the memes and the casual glances and the checks if that's what it takes to seek a chaste life. We'll cling to Christ and express our desires for such things only in the covenant of marriage or not at all. Fourthly, we marked a mark of a healthy Christian is to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That may be to the ends of the earth, or it may be the end of your street to share the gospel. It may be to VBS ministry or to Sunday worship. But we will follow the Lord wherever He goes, and we'll be shielded from the tricks of the traitor. Learners of the way, always learning the way of the Lord, being open to understanding Scripture more rightly. More straightly. And fifthly, as the first fruits, not of Egypt's unredeemed, but of Israel's redeemed, we measure our words with great care for integrity in everything that we say, for honor, for mercy, for true statements. We want to protect the weak and we want to speak the gospel. We don't want to embellish or speak out of turn or malign or gossip. Our mouths are for truth projection, and the Lord is watching our use of language. We don't speak words that imitate the dragon. We speak words that imitate our Lord. To sum these up, the redeemed are being made blameless. That's what those five things are. That's the marks of a healthy Christian. Revelation 14.5 indicates blameless, which I think is explained. God over money, singing not for self, sacrificed, not sensuality, followers of the word, not the world with mouths that speak purely. Surely we're going to fall short. But these are the marks of a healthy Christian, aspirational marks to the redeemed people marked by the Lord for salvation. Contrast 
It's like this help us to persevere, to endure, to be patient, and not to swerve off the path into utopian fixes on the one side or get swept up in the worldly culture full of deceived earth dwellers on the other. It's passages like this that warm us because they warn us. So how do I know who the Christians are? Well, we're the, we're the saving, singing, sacrificing, serving, speaking the truth type of people. We don't have the marks of worldliness, but of godliness. For without holiness, no one will see God. And no, you aren't doing this in your own strength, but in the strength of the one who saved you and saved the untold multitudes, past and present. You know, there's a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews says, that's washing us, it's cheering us on in this race as we proclaim Christ and overcome challenges and sometimes just waddle through it. There's a great cloud of onlooking weaknesses right now as current pilgrims with you in the here and now. That's the purpose of the gathered out local church. In many ways, it's one purpose. Contrasts between the redeemed and the unredeemed, they reveal, and revelation is a blessing always. We need contrast to expose differences. Some of my greatest growth opportunities in life have come with contrast, where I've seen where I'm not hitting it. But God is gracious to reveal us these contrasts in the Scripture. We learn by definition and testimony, but we learn by comparison too. We need to compare and contrast. We need to join in what God is doing. We need to wake up. And as covenant members of this local church, marked off as God's redeemed people, we need to testify to those who lack wisdom and understanding, who are calculated only based on the number of man, who will be tempted to take the mark so they can buy and sell now rather than be bought, not sold for eternity. The number of man never satisfies, but the number of God perfectly does. This word redeemed is used in Revelation 15.3 and 15.4. It comes from the Greek root word agorizo or agora. It's a marketplace term. It is translated in 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 as bought instead of redeemed. They're synonyms. Either could work, depending on context. I remember, I know as youth pastor, many moons ago, we had a, a wooden cross and we bought UP, we cut out UPC symbols off of boxes of cereal and Pop-Tarts and stuff, and the kids would bring them in like you'd save them to try to get money for school or something. You know, they'd, cut, they'd bring them in. Instead, we'd tape them to the cross, and it was to remind us of 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 that you are not your own, but you were bought at a price. That agora language, that marketplace language, that redemption language is what's being brought to bear in Revelation 15, 1, or I'm sorry, 14, 1 to 5, our last five verses for today. It's, it's a marketplace term, and it's to be the property of another by purchase or by means of a financial transaction, as one lexicon puts it. So Jesus already knows the temptation, right? He knows the temptation is that we will be tempted with buying and selling and doing whatever it takes to buy and sell and going along to get along and with unwise compromises with the marks of an antichrist, of the antichrists again and again. And so he builds in an economic term of his own at the end of our passage today. Redeemed. Agora. To be bought. Well, what did Jesus buy? He bought me. He bought you, didn't he? Isn't that what he purchased in the marketplace at Calvary? Well, how did he pay for it? He paid for you 
and fulfilled the sacrificial system of the blood of lambs by becoming the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the final sacrifice once for all for sins. No returning to an old system for us, folks. Christ bought you. He redeemed you from the earthly marketplace at Calvary. You're no longer marked by the beast's intentions. You're marked as a believer. You've been bought with a price, so let's live like it. In the grace and the gratitude of our sacrificial Savior, to be sure, all glory to Him who paid it all that we might be assured, not of our own strength but of His. We were bought with a price. He paid it all that we might be assured and that we can live like it. So let's be assured and let's live like it. And let's bow our heads and pray. God, without you, we wouldn't be marked as the redeemed, and we would not have the the strength to live out our markedness as healthy Christians. We are able because you've enabled us, and we are grateful because you decided to have us to inhabit this earth and to redeem us from the number of man and to make us yours. Thank you. As we meditate on these things, we thank you.